Let me pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word today and uh, see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So, Father, we do want just what I just said. We want you to, we want your Spirit to say something to us. And maybe you always, of course, you're always talking to us, but we want to hear specifically uh, and see what you're saying and showing us because we want to be the kind of people that you said we could be, and that's full of the life and the power that come from God. We ask this in your name. Amen. So I had an uh, a, a introduction to the sermon today that I thought was going to be funny, but I'm not doing it. So this, this is right here. Because on the way to church this morning, I thought, I was, I, I thought God wanted me to start it differently. Um, I think it was funny. It may, may not have been that funny. That's the only reason. But anyway. But I, I was coming to church this morning, and you might know this song from your, if you grew up in the church at all. But this is what was coming into my head, and this is, I'm just kind of framing the sermon with this, this the, the song that goes, old hymn, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him, in his presence daily live, and it's, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All right. And I remember hearing a speaker one time talking about, we really aren't serious when we sing that song because even when it comes to, you know, we might think uh, one-fourth to Jesus, I surrender, one-fourth. You know, we don't want to get 95%, you know, but all, what does that mean? And so I just, that, this was kind of ringing in my head. So I'm going to read, I'm going to start off by reading from John chapter 21. It's all about this. This is what I started last week. So this is, uh, there's nothing overly biblical about this, but so uh, last week is Easter. That's why you'll see in a lot of church children's white tablecloths. This is considered the second week of Easter because Easter goes, the weeks of Easter in terms of kind of emphasis in the church year, again, tradition, not Bible, goes all the way 40 days when Jesus was on the earth all the way to Pentecost. So today is by some standards, Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopal, it's the second Sunday of Easter. So I just thought when I was thinking about this few weeks ago, I thought I'm going to do, we're going to look at different passages of what happened after Easter Sunday before the book of Acts with individual people. Because uh, Easter, Easter is kind of like the bedrock of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, we wouldn't be here or we'd be doing something else today, right? So um, last week I talked about Peter and a little bit of what happened after the resurrection when he saw Jesus. Today I'm going to continue with Peter. But then I, uh, there's also Thomas. Jesus has a conversation with Thomas. Uh, a guy named Cleopas. There's other people Jesus interacted with after his resurrection. That I think maybe can kind of give us a bigger picture of what does it mean that we... I put down below Easter for people like us. You know, What does it mean that Easter... So this is John chapter 20. It's the last chapter of John. And um, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to focus on the end part. But I think, and I'm going to, I'm going to do something, ask you what I asked you last week. There's, I think I told you there's a, there was a priest, Catholic priest in the 1500s named Ignatius of Loyola. And so there's something that he challenged people to do. And people refer to it now as Ignatian imagination. Which is basically just put yourself into the text. Try to feel what it was like to be here, be there. Specifically, maybe put yourself in Peter's heart, mind, and emotions. Because if you just read the Bible as a text of information, it's, it, it lacks kind of the three-dimensional reality of people. So as I read this, try to see 
smell the air. This is on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is really a really, really big lake. So think maybe Lake Monroe times five. So it wasn't really a sea per se. Um, but this is where they would have gone fishing. This is where Peter and all of them were fishermen. And that's where this event happens. All right. So this is later. This is chapter 21 of Mark or John. Later, and this would mean, just means later, like Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after his resurrection. Now, this is later, but this is still in that 40-day period between the resurrection and Pentecost. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. That's the sons of Zebedee. And two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, this is just so earthy. I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went to the boat. But they caught nothing at all, all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who it was, and he called out, I don't know if Jesus had a sense of humor, maybe he does. Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't. John talks about himself. There were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, and that's John. John talks about himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I don't think it was being egotistical, but sort of naming himself in his book, he called himself. So then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. They had stripped down like the underclothes for when they were fishing, jumped into the water, and headed for shore. The other stayed with the boat and pulled the... And pulled the loaded fish to the shore. For they were only about 100 yards from the shore. So Peter jumps out 100 yards, swimming, running, whatever he's doing. All right. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooked over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish. Just the fact that John remembered that number when he was recounting this. 153. 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? So for whatever reason, they didn't recognize him. That happened a couple times after the resurrection. None of them dared ask, who are you? Because they knew it was Jesus. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus turns to Simon Peter. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times the night he was betrayed. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Blankety blank blank. I don't know the man. Right? So Jesus says, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I do. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, named for Peter, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Of course, Peter might have been a little exasperated, like, what, what's going on here? But he also denied Jesus three times, so he's emotional t- turmoil probably. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. The next part is what I'll focus on this morning. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he says to Peter, When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself, and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others 
will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And he's not talking about old age. Jesus said this to let him know, to let Peter know what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter was crucified um, 30 or or 10 or 20 years later in Rome. Jesus let him said this so he'd know what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple that Jesus loved, John. So Peter's sitting there. Jesus had just told him, you're, you're, going to feed, you're going to be a leader in my church. You're going to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, but you're going to be led places that you'd rather not go. So Peter, I'm laughing because I think it's a little funny because we're all like this. It says, Peter, hold on, I lost my place. <laughs> yeah. So then Peter looked around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved, John, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and said, who will betray you? And Peter asked Jesus, after Peter at this kind of challenge, Peter says, what about him, Lord? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus just says, what your life's going to be like. And Peter's like, but what about him? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? John was the only one of the disciples who was not martyred. Right? So Jesus says to Peter, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die, but that isn't what Jesus said. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So two phrases here. What about him, Lord? I mean, (laughs) Jesus just... They're sitting around the fire having fish and bread. Jesus basically tells Peter, this is going to be the story of your life. You're going to be my follower. You're going to lead people, feed people, take care of people. And, you know, Peter was significant in bringing the gospel to his fellow Jews. But he kind of gives the impression that it's going to be hard. And Peter, like we might do, looks over to John and is like, what about him? Jesus. Now, if you remember from earlier in in the passage, uh, the morning of the resurrection, when Mary told them that Jesus was alive, and it says that Peter started running to the tomb. Remember last week, John ran too, and what did John say about himself? He outran Peter to the tomb. So you wonder if there was a little competition going on with these two guys. I don't know. They probably loved each other. But Peter says says to Jesus, what about him? And Jesus basically says, that's not, that's not for you to know. There's a story, if you, if you, if you know uh, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, it was a childhood book, kind of an allegory about Jesus and Jesus and, and about following Jesus and the lamb is, the lion's name is Aslan. And there's a boy in the book named, the horse and his boy named Shasta. And Shasta, is, he's had kind of a rough go of it and he kind of gets introduced to Aslan the lion, and he's kind of complaining to Aslan and talking about his life. And then Shasta brings up this little girl named Erebus, like she'd had some stuff happen that was hard, and Shasta says to the lion, to Jesus, why did that happen to her? And then Aslan says this line that is similar to what Jesus said to Peter, but Aslan says this, I'm telling you your story not hers. 
I tell no one any story but their own. All right, because Peter's saying, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm not going to tell you his story. What's that to you? Now, I don't think Jesus said it with a hurtful attitude. Like, what's that to you? But this whole sense of, what about him? Why is their life easier than mine? Facebook, Instagram. What about them? Why, why do they, what about them? I'm guessing maybe you've asked Jesus that question before. You maybe not phrase it that way. You maybe, maybe didn't think that you were being just like Peter. And Jesus doesn't necessarily rebuke Peter. He does rebuke him, but he's not like harsh. He's like, that's not your story, Peter. I'm not telling you that story. I'm telling you your story. So I like to write. Sometimes I write just for myself. It's one for express my thoughts. But I wrote something a few years ago, and I'm going to read it. And it's called, Lord, What About Him? All right? So it's a little bit autobiographical, but it's also a little transparent. I'll say up front, um, pastors are human like everybody else. And I'm one of them, all right? And sometimes we wish things were different in our churches. Typically, we always think about, oh, I wish I had a bigger church. There's not a pastor alive that hasn't thought that. If, if they tell you that, they are a liar, all right? They're lying, all right? But here's what I wrote one day, all right? Lord, what about him? It's a somewhat understandable question that Peter asked Jesus after being told the kind of death he would endure as a follower of Jesus. And the phrase that Jesus used, others will take you where you don't want to go, highlights this not-so-encouraging assignment handed to Peter. Perhaps Peter, upon hearing this, paused a bit to think, but knowing Peter's often speak-before-you-think personality, it's likely that he quickly looked over at John, sitting next to Jesus, and says, so what about him? So before I jump to any kind of judgy reaction, so judgy is kind of the word that kids now, college kids use to be judgmental, but so... If you want to use that in a cool term, judgy. You don't want to be judgy, all right? So before I jump to any kind of judgy reaction to Peter's obviously immature response, let me tell you about my morning on this rainy Tuesday. This was two or three years ago. I had some time for a leisure drive before I needed to go to work this morning. Took time to drive country roads, listen to worship music. I wanted to rest my soul and connect with God. On my way back into town, I drove by another Christ-centered church in Bloomington, this one is a growing, one of the growing churches in our community. And like I said, it's a Christ-centered, Bible-centered church. And the pastor is a solid shepherd of his flock. There were more cars in their parking lot at 10.30 a.m. on a Tuesday morning than cars in our church parking lot at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And I don't think it was for any event. It was likely the cars of staff who worked or volunteered at the church, which appears to be more than attend our church on Sunday morning. Yes, I pastor a small church, really small even putting that into print is a bit humbling and hard for me. So this is, I wrote this for myself, all right? So I'm just, by small, I mean less than 40 people, including kids on a typical Sunday. I've worked at and preached at churches of 600 and 1,500. Our current church at one time had 150, but our numbers have settled into a small flock. I'm now 61 years old. I'm 60 years old in this, in this one. I've pastored for over 30 years, but this is the assignment that Jesus now has for me. Somehow, instead of climbing up the ladder of success... I seem to be slowly descending. No one really aspires to be a pastor of a small church, do they? No one enters ministry with a dream to preach to 25 people on Sunday morning. I know the pastor of this more cars on a weekday than my church. I know this pastor. He's gifted. I don't think I'm any less gifted. 
He loves Jesus, but I don't love Jesus any less. He knows the Bible, but I don't think I know the Bible any less than he does. So you see where I'm going with this. Lord, what about him? Why does he get the assignment to pastor a bigger church compared to me? Why do I feel that I have lesser assignment compared to him? Why does my journey include going, quote, where I don't want to go? Or pastoring a really small church, unlike his? Lord, why him and not me? Lord, what about him? Jesus answers firmly to me, what is that to you? Not what I wanted to hear at all, but I need to hear it over and over again. And I make this reference. What is that to you? Makes me think of Aslan's response to the boy Shasta and the horses and his boy. Shasta is tired, feeling sorry for himself, and he's frightened. He's trying to make sense of all that he's experiencing. Specifically, he asks about Aslan's involvement in a situation involving the young girl, Erebus. Child, says the lion, I am telling you your story and not hers. No one has told any story but their own. So I, like Shasta and like Peter, ask Jesus about the stories of others, about other pastors with stories more desirable than mine. Well, what about him? Jesus reminds me that he's only telling me my story. Comparison to or analysis of the stories of others only leads me to things like pride or envy or jealousy. Peter asks about John's story. Shasta, Shasta wonders about the story surrounding his friend Erebus. So I asked Jesus about the details of the story of the pastor of a growing church in my town. It's not unlike viewing the stories of others on Facebook, Instagram, or other social media. In the social media world, the stories of others often seem more successful, more happy, and more desirable than my story. In reality, everybody's story has joys and sorrows including those of us who follow Jesus and live our stories in his larger story. Asking the what about them question of Jesus is understandable. The what's that to you response of Jesus is frustrating, but also really good for my soul. I have a choice to trust him or not. I have a choice to live fully present in my story or not. I can find fullness of joy in my own story or fall into the world of comparison, envy, jealousy, and entitlement, which only shrivels my story, shrivels my soul. And then he said, then I, he, I'm, I'm reading what I wrote. I choose the story that Jesus is telling me. I, maybe you don't go into the world of comparison about your family, your marriage, whether you're married or not, your kids or whatever. But I'm guessing all of us have probably asked that, well, what about them? What about them? And Jesus says, before he has this conversation with Peter, says, Peter, follow me. And he tells him what's going to happen. Jesus says, Peter says, what about him? Jesus says, what's that to you? And then Jesus says again, follow me. So you can, I can, you can. We can live in this story of comparisons, entitlement, jealousy, envy. You can live in that story. I will promise you it will not bring any life to your soul. None. So again, you might think you know, Christianity, Jesus says we have to take up our cross and follow him. So denying ourselves doesn't mean we need to kill our desires, but we put our desires in submission to Jesus. 
So that's the kind of people he wants to be. We've, we have our desires. Peter didn't want to die. I'm sure when he's like, what about him? He's like, can I, can I trade stories? But I'm just on. I want his story. I mean, John writes more books than I do in the Bible. I mean, Peter never said that, but I'm just being, if I'm Peter. He got 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he got Revelation, and he got the Gospel of John. All he get is 1st and 2nd Peter. All right? But we have that comparison. So even when you think about, and I, this, is, this is connected, but I just thought it was interesting. When you think about people that, uh, same-sex attracted people, all right? And how easy it is for us to say, well, that's just not what God wants. You know, it's not biblical. You have to deny yourself. It's easier to say that to them, and I'm not saying them as a different category of people, but are you saying the same thing to God about denying yourself things that you know God has written in your story that don't include what you want it to include? God, God cares about our desires. Please don't understand me. God cares about our desires deeply, but our desires always have to be in submission to what he wants for us. So we can ask the what about him story or why is he's married and I'm not or she's married and I'm not or they have five kids, we have two, we can't have kids. Those are all legitimate, understandable questions, frustrations, and things to at times even want to complain about. It's understandable. I'm not saying that's not understandable. What I'm saying is, this is the resurrected Jesus weeks after his resurrection, and he's just telling Peter, just follow me. Stop the comparison. What is that to you? My story, like, like, he, like Aslan said to Shasta, I'll tell John his story. I'll tell you your story. Don't ask me to explain his story to you because that's not yours. So it's even, you know, we, we tend to think, or I tend to think, maybe you do too, and after resurrection, Jesus is the spirit of God is now in people and power of the resurrection, and shouldn't life be easier? Shouldn't life be comfortable? We all want that. Nobody wants uncomfortable life. Nobody wants a hard life. Nobody aspires to have things, have their life not turn out like they if we were to write our own story, our life would probably turn out different than what how Jesus writes it out, right? But Jesus says, your desires are good. Scripture tells us God gives the desires of our heart. So our desires to put before him are good. But in the end, we submit our desires to him. Just like Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, if there's another way, take this cup from me. If there's a plan B, so Jesus expressed the desire then he said, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he submitted his desires to the Father. He didn't play, I mean, Jesus is not going to play the comparison game, but, he, you know, Peter, don't compare yourself. John's story is going to be different than yours. And, uh, and you know this, maybe you, you know, comparison does nothing but kill our souls, right? So I don't know what your comparison struggle is. I don't know who has a better story that you wish you had. I don't know whose life, whose marriage, whose family, whose kids, whose job, whatever. I don't know whose story that you wonder why they get that story and I get this story. Legitimate to ask the question, but in the end you have to, I have to, submit ourselves to the story that Jesus is writing for us. 
which is to follow him. And then what the promise of Jesus is? You live that life, he promises extreme joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment in life. And you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But if I don't get the story I want, I'm going to miss the joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. But Jesus says, no, that's what you don't understand. You live the story that I want for you, and I will lead you to joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. We've got it kind of flipped around, and we think we know how to get there. But Jesus knows how to get there. He knows how to get you there. His promise is, is fulfillment, joy, satisfaction. I come to give them life to the full, he said. Yeah, he said we have to take up our cross and follow him. How does that fit with full life? We have to deny ourselves. How does that fit with full life? I don't understand it, but I know that's what Jesus' promise is. So assuming, clearly assuming, and I know that Jesus says if we live a life where we deny ourselves, in other words, putting our desires in submission to Jesus, doesn't mean kill your desires, he will, he promises to lead us to the fullness of joy, fullness of satisfaction, and he calls a rich and satisfying life. That's what he promises. So in this post-resurrection time of Peter, I, I, I'm, I'm, becoming, I'm becoming better friends with Peter because I thought, I think I'm just like him, right? You know, not really sure, kind of upset when God asked me, do you love me more than, you know, three times? But this, this one here, when Peter, I'm just, I would love to see, I would love to have been there. They're all sitting around. I don't know, maybe he didn't say it quickly. And I'll just finish this one more time when he's, what about him? Let's pray. So Jesus, deliver us from the darkness of comparison, from the darkness of envy, from the darkness of coveting the stories of others. Deliver us from that because we know once we're delivered from that and once we die to that, then our pathway leads to what you call fullness of joy. And that's just not heaven after we die. You promised that for this life. So we want to be the kind of people who might be tempted to and maybe even verbalize the question that Peter asked you, Jesus. But it's obvious that after Peter asked the question and his conversation with you, that Jesus, you, that Peter was totally committed to doing what you asked him to do because he was part of changing the world in the years to follow until he was martyred. So your promise is true for Peter. Your promise is true for every single one of the disciples. Your promises are true for every single one of us. That if we follow you, if we follow you, it might be bumpy, might not be the story that we would write if we were given the pen, but if it's the story that you have written for us and we follow you in our story, that you will lead us to joy and to peace and to fullness and to rest for our souls. And we're, we love you for that. That's who we want to be. And we ask this all, Jesus, uh, in your name. Amen. So um, Aaron's going to come on up and we'll finish with a song. So uh, we take communion every Sunday and we do it. Um, there's no, like, biblical reason other than we just, I think it's just, it's good for us to end reminding ourselves about Jesus. And scripture even tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, the joy set before him endured the cross. 
That was his story, and I'll capitalize H and capitalize S. His story was to go through suffering and extreme discomfort for the sake of the joy before him, which was to set us free. So if we're going to follow Jesus, why, why would our story be any different than his? So Scripture says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so when he had the last meal with the disciples before his death and resurrection, he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat this, remember me. Every time you eat this, remember me. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins for many. Every time you drink this, you proclaim the forgiveness of sins to others. So every time we eat and drink a little dried-up wafer and Welsh's grape juice, what we're doing is more than just symbolic. It's kind of a mystical thing. We're actually saying to Jesus, I accept you, your way, and your story into my life. It's a, it's a way of accepting Jesus' leadership in your story. So he said, every time you eat this, remember me. And maybe right now what, we're, what, what maybe he wants us to remember is, remember that I will tell you your story and it will lead to joy. And remember, don't compare because it will never lead you to the joy you want, all right? So let me pray, and then Aaron come up and lead us. So God, we, uh, we're grateful uh, that your mission for every single human you create, you want joy and fullness and peace. And then Jesus, we're grateful to you that you were the architect of that. You were the pioneer of that for us. You, were the, you modeled the story for what it, how do we live to get to joy and to peace and to fullness. And uh, we want that story. So by wanting that story, we also elevate and lift up your story because it's the story that was the catalyst for all of ours because your spirit now is in us and we have the power and the joy to endure whatever you're, you have put into our story because we know it leads us to joy. And we, we trust you. We admit it's hard at times for us, but we trust you. We trust you. We trust your story will lead us to fullness of life. And we're grateful that you broke your body at the cross. Grateful that God raised you from the dead so that would be possible for us. And we're no longer, we're no longer on our own. We're no longer living on our own power. But we live under yours. And we ask this all Christ in your name. Amen.